a joy to be with everyone this morning to be able to worship together in this place, and I hope that we can be edified and encouraged and benefited by the studies uh, that we'll engage in uh, this morning. What we're going to do for this first hour of worship is to continue a study on authority. The font did not translate, I thought it might, and uh, what that says is by what authority, moral authority. And so I think the rest of the slides will be easier to look at. I'll make sure that's fixed next time we get around to the last lesson on authority. Um, We're going to continue a study on authority that we began some time ago. And we've looked at several facets of authority, some some general things and then some kind of sub-points of those general points. And so we're going to consider this morning what I called moral authority. And there's a distinction that I'm trying to make us see, and so hopefully uh, we'll be able to understand that this morning. But we've engaged in five studies so far, this being the sixth. And the first, we talked about how we need authority, and this is all coming from, at least uh, it's prefaced by uh, Luke 20 and verses 1 through 8, where the Jewish leaders are questioning Jesus about the things that he's doing, and asking, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus gives a response, and we'll not look in detail at that text this morning because we've been looking at it throughout this study. But we've noticed that there is the implication in their question and Jesus' response that we need authority. We can't just do whatever we want to do. We need authority. And we noted that there are certainly secular truths that establish authority is important throughout all facets of life, and even more so, Biblical examples and inherent within our conversion is a translation to the position of being under Christ's authority as king. We also looked at the fact that we need the right source of authority. So Jesus responded, the baptism of John, is it from heaven or from men? And so there are really only two options. Either the authority we appeal to is from heaven, from God, or it's from men. And The implication in the reasoning of the Jewish leaders is that one is valid and one is invalid. If they said from heaven, they should have obeyed the baptism of John. If they said from men, then that makes John irrelevant and the people will get angry because they view John as a prophet. And so we need to have uh, heavenly authority and we need to be able to verify that. We also looked at the fact that we've got to establish authority. Their very question would imply Jesus could demonstrate where His authority is from. And we noted that the Bible is very clear that the way God communicates to us and therefore expresses His authority and the way we'll be able to establish authority for whatever we say and do is through command or direct statement, example, or necessary implication. And that's the way we communicate in all aspects of life. When you're teaching someone something, you either command them or directly state something to them, or you show them, by example, you show them how to do it. We do that a lot. And then they hear your words and can reach inescapable, necessary, demanded conclusions that we are trying to get across to them. And then a subset of that is understanding there are generic uh, things that fall under a generic realm of authority. It's not expressly stated but there is revelation that leads us to the conclusion that something is authorized or unauthorized. And then there is specific authority. And within those two realms, there are you know, subsets. And one of those is expediencies. We talked about those things which are helpful to us carrying out a command of God, and those fall under the realm of generic authority. And then we talked about how 
The Bible is certainly uh, silent on some matters. And someone take that as authority to do something that the Bible does not expressly forbid. But we realize in that study that silence inherently prohibits. It does not permit. And we noted that especially as it pertains to the fact that God's revelation is intentional. He revealed to us everything He wants us to do, and He's revealed to us everything that is wrong for us to do. And in His perfect, flawless, and complete revelation, it implies that if He didn't say something, He meant not to say it. And that does not permit, it prohibits. We can't find authority from the silence of the Scriptures. Well, I've considered this lesson in the title as moral authority. And morality is a very general term. It it covers many facets of our lives. But the main distinction I want to draw here this morning is and emphasize is that Christ's authority, it reaches into our individual lives. And so a lot of times when we're talking about authority and how does authority work, what do we need authority for and how do we establish that authority, we often find ourselves nearly exclusively speaking about the work, worship, and organization of the Lord's church. That is extremely important. We need authority for what we're doing here this morning. We need authority for this building. We need authority for the songs we sing and the songbooks we use to sing those songs, so on and so forth. And we've established how we can see there is authority for these things. And if there is an authority, we ought not to be doing them or using them, so on and so forth. But does Christ's authority reach beyond what we do as a collective, what we are and what we practice as a local congregation into our individual lives. When we're not here at the assembly, when I'm by myself at work or at school or with my friends and doing whatever it is I'm doing, just on a Saturday afternoon when I'm relaxing, is there something that I need to be aware of in regard to how I'm living my life? Does Christ's authority reach to that level? And I understand that that may seem like an obvious answer to give, but I want to suggest to you that there are some areas where even Christians find themselves contradicting this idea of Christ's universal enforcing authority. And more to that point, we've studied on authority specifically in various areas. For example, how to establish authority. You've got to have a command or direct statement an approved example, or a necessary implication in order to be practicing what we practice as a congregation. What about as an individual? I recently came across a situation where it became aware. I became aware of the fact that some Christians think that we need either a command or direct statement, an approved example, or necessary implication for all that we do as a church, but we can't say that we need that as an individual. But I disagree with that statement. And I think that that comes into this realm of morality. Furthermore, in regard to this question, there is the implied question in regard to our accountability to God and holding each other accountable in those areas. Does any Christian have the right or obligation to bind certain moral requirements and standards on each other and enforce them? Or or, or are we supposed to stay out of each other's business? You know, everything that we talk about 
as we do collectively as a church, we got to hold each other accountable is, is what is being taught right, is what is being practiced right. And, and we're going to call each other out on those things. We're going to bring it to the attention of the leaders or the congregation as a whole that we don't believe what we're doing is according to the pattern and we need to make sure we're holding fast to the pattern. But what about our individual lives? The things we say and do and think. Are there governing laws beyond the functionality of the local church to be enforced within our individual daily lives. I would suggest to you that certainly there are. I want to assert to you that there is a moral authority. There certainly is a moral authority. And we need to make sure that we're abiding by it. Uh, This isn't clicking. Um, There is a moral authority. And I want to suggest to you that the same authority that governs the actions of the church collectively It also governs the actions of the individual. And we would do well to realize that. If you don't mind hitting the space bar or something to advance, I don't know what this clicker is doing. Uh, We'll be able to get through this regardless, though. Just follow with me and and, uh, pay careful attention to my words. The same authority, I'll say again, governing the actions of the church collectively also governs the actions of the individual Christian there is certainly a moral authority. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I want to suggest to you that all implies no limit. Not just all in regard to every situation or every person, but every place, which would include all of our individual actions and activities and circumstances we find ourselves in. Not just when we act as a church do we need to ask the question, does Christ authorize this? But when we act as one Christian by ourselves, at work, at school, at home, in our marriages, in our relationships, as as parents, as children, all of these areas, no matter what the situation is, we must be able to find and establish the authority from Christ for what we say and do. His authority encompasses the entirety of our existence. And so practically speaking, we can understand why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 17 that whatever you do in word or deed, you must do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Doing something in the name of the Lord is the same as doing something by His authority. Now again, we've used that verse countless times throughout this study to establish the fact that we need authority for everything we do as a congregation. In 1 Timothy 3, in verse 15, Paul mentions that he writes to Timothy that he may know how he ought to conduct himself in the church of the living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just in passing reference, the Apostle Paul mentioned that his writings, the things that he says are the commandments of the Lord, in a context concerning church action and worshiping decently and in order. And one of the things he says there that's interesting is that the Corinthians evidently had this thought that their standard of practicing in the worship of the church and using spiritual gifts was different than every other congregation. And so Paul said, did the word of God come originally from you or was it from you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He's saying this is the same standard across the board. There is local church autonomy, but what that does not equate to is that we get to do whatever we want. We still have to live and practice 
in this local congregation the same standard as any other church that belongs to the Lord. But in Colossians 3 and verse 17, he's not even discussing matters which specifically pertain to local congregational collective action. He says, whatever you do essentially must be done by the authority of the Lord. And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Bondservants, obey your masters in all things. Masters, chapter 4, verse 1, give your bondservants what is just and fair. He's not talking about church action. He's talking about individuals functioning within their own individual lives and they must be doing everything and saying everything by the authority of our Lord. When you leave this place, when I leave this place, we should not have this thought that, okay, we're getting outside from, out, out, out from under the umbrella of Christ's authority. We're, it's very important to toe the line when we're with the brethren. It's very important that we're worshiping in the proper way, that we're organized in the proper way, that we're functioning and practicing what Christ has specified, what He has authorized, and nothing more and nothing less. But when I go to work, when I leave this place, I, I don't have any of those kinds of regulations. It's not as strict. I, I'm just left to myself. we got to realize that's not the case. And this may seem to go without saying, but I think it needs to be said. It needs to be understood. Because there are some who understand this intellectually, but I want to suggest to you that some brethren exhibit a disbelief in this concept of Christ's authority being enforced in their individual lives and individual actions in a practical way. You might have heard of the term practical atheism. And what that describes is a person who believes there's a God. They believe that God exists. They're not going to deny the evidence in creation, but they live as though they did not believe God exists. I think we all know people like that. They say, I believe God exists. He created me and He created me for a purpose, but they're not even investigating as to what that purpose is. They're practical atheists. Their belief does not translate in any way into their lives. And so for a Christian to say, I understand that Christ has all authority, that He's the Lord of my life, we've got to do everything by the book when we're as a congregation, and I need to know everything that He commands and, and prohibits so that I can live by the book even in my own individual life. But then they're not submitting to the commands of God. They're not abstaining from the things that Christ says we must abstain from. We need to not only understand this intellectually, but we need to understand it practically. I want to tell you that the same authority that governs the actions of the church certainly governs the actions of the individual. And there's plenty of evidence in Scripture that His authority reaches beyond and is demonstrated beyond the local assembly. For example, in James chapter 1 and in verse 27, James writes that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now what we see in the context demonstrated is that he's addressing the individual. Throughout the entire context of James 1 are pronouns which are describing not a collectivity, but an individual. There are brethren who have taken this and twisted it to mean that the church collectively 
can support orphans' homes and widows' homes. And they've abused the text to that degree. What James is addressing is a specific realm that is different from the realm of the collectivity of the local congregation where Christ's authority exists and should be enforced and submitted to. He's not talking about the church responsibility. He's saying you as an individual distinct from the collective whole have a responsibility in this regard. Likewise, as we look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, there is a, an obvious distinction between what is a church obligation collectively and what is an individual obligation that must be submitted to. When he's speaking about the support of widows, he says, honor widows who are truly rid- widows, who are really widows. And he goes on to demonstrate what he means by that. And, and this context is discussing widows being, being aided by the treasury of the church. He's speaking about a benevolence that is ongoing and permanent. Widows being taken into a role of continual support by the church treasury. And he speaks about those who are really widows because he goes on in verses 9 through 10 to show there are conditions and qualifications to be taken into this continual role of support. One of those is you don't have anyone else to care for you. And so here's this distinction. It's the church's job to care for those who are widows if they are really widows, completely left to themselves, of a certain age, displaying a certain character. But notice in verse 8, he speaks about an individual responsibility that is distinct from the local church. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, he says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then notice that in contrast to verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. That's your moral obligation, not the church's. It's your obligation. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. All I'm trying to do is show a distinction. Christ's authority is certainly enforced on the church collectively. But I want to tell you that it's just as much enforced in your life as an individual. It is equally important that we find authority for all that we say and do as an individual as it is for the church which would mean it is likewise equally egregious for us to disobey the authority of Christ as an individual in every facet, in every way, than it would be for us to disobey the authority of Christ as a church. And so that brings us to our next point. There is moral authority, but that moral authority must be communicated. And I want to tell you that in order to know what is right and wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, we must be able to have that standard revealed to us. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. And that again is a verse we oftentimes quote in reference to our actions as a church. There's a pattern of how the church is organized. There's a pattern of how the church works. There is a pattern of how the church worships. We must not deviate from that pattern. We must not add to it or take away from it. Is there a pattern for us to follow individually as single Christians? Someone would say, no, not necessarily. That You don't have to have a command, example, or necessary inference for everything you do as an individual, just as a church. Well, what they're suggesting is there's a lack of pattern for the individual. But who's Paul writing here to? In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, he's writing to a man named Timothy. 
and he's telling him primarily how he should conduct himself. Now, it involves some things concerning the church, certainly. But he's telling Timothy, this is how you as an individual conduct yourself in these various realms. But I'm talking to you, Timothy. I want to tell you that a standard of morality must be revealed to be known. Positively revealed, because we can't know it within ourselves. In Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, he says, The way of man is not in himself, it is not a man who walks to direct his own steps. And the proverb writer in chapter 14 and verse 12 tells us why. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Not any more than we could have discovered the pattern of the church within ourselves can we discover the pattern of morality within ourselves. Someone says, well, you just know it. You'll know it when you see it. That doesn't work with the church. Why would it work with the individual? There's an inconsistency there. You know, Moses was commanded to build the tabernacle, but he was given a pattern for it. Moses could not have known within himself what the tabernacle should be. And it's no different as an individual in doing what is right and refraining from what is wrong. We can't know it within ourselves. There is no facet of our existence where that is the case. Across the board, God must reveal to us what we must do and what we must not do. Someone will talk about the conscience, though. You, you know it within yourself. There, there's some innate law, even some brethren would suggest, that we live by. We, we don't have a command, example, or necessary inference for everything. What we do have is ingrained within our DNA a moral code. I don't see that in the Bible. If that was the case, then our conscience would be a good guide. Paul said, I lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And he included in that the times where he persecuted the church. But I want us to notice what he says in Romans 7 and verse 7 in regard to a moral thing, something that involves himself as an individual. He said, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said you shall not covet. I believe that covetousness is one of those things that some would imply you just know it's wrong. If this belongs to someone else, it would be wrong for you to desire it to such a degree that you took action to take it. That's covetous. That's wrong. We just know that. Paul didn't say he just knew it. In fact, Paul said, I didn't know it until the law said you shall not covet. There is no part of our existence that we can know what is pleasing to God simply within ourselves. It always has to be revealed. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119 and verse 9 said this, How can a young man cleanse his way? Well, you need to just be honest with yourself. You know something's wrong. And, and within yourself, it's, it's innate. It's, it's something we have with, ingrained within our DNA. You just need to not be a, a social deviant, but conform to what everyone knows is right. Everyone knows this is moral. Everyone knows this is immoral. He says, by taking heed according to your word. You cannot live a moral life without the revelation of God. Which leads us to this. If we cannot know what is right and wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, what we must do, what we must not do, except that God reveals it to us, then it must be communicated by some method. We've already demonstrated throughout this study that God communicates His authority, His pattern for us to live by, for us to work and worship by as a church collectively through His Word. The grace of God that brings salvation has been revealed to all men, has come to all men teaching. We know that He teaches us and He tells us what is authorized, what is unauthorized. But I want us to notice in Titus 2 and verse 12 what He goes on to say the grace of God teaches us. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I want to tell you, He's not talking about the church. 
Yes, Ephesians 5 says that the church should be pure. In fact, he, he cleansed her with the washing of water by the word that he might present himself to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. But the church is composed of individuals that make up the collective. And we as members of that church operating individually are not operating as the church, but as a Christian. And he's saying the grace of God teaches you to live moral lives. Now, what does that amount to? How can we know? Well, we know how to operate as a church collectively by direct statement and command, example, and necessary inference. This is how God communicates to us. Everything we do as a church, the way we have authority for it, is because we either see a direct statement or command, an approved example, or a necessary inference. Not necessarily all of them, but at least one of them. Everything we do. Because that's how God communicates. But someone will say, you see, that's not the case as an individual. We don't have to have one of those three to be sure it's authorized for us to act in this way. Let's just follow some logic here, a syllogism as we call it. We must have authority for all that we do as individuals. If that's not true, the rest isn't true that I'm about to say, but I think we all agree with that. We must have authority for what we do as individuals. Now, God communicates His will, thus His authority. He tells us what is right and wrong through these means. Command, direct statement, example, necessary inference. And so if we've got to have authority for everything we do as individuals, and this is how God communicates His authority, then we as individuals must have one of these three in order to know that what we're doing is authorized. Someone says, that's not how it works. But I want to tell you that Jesus uses these express forms of communication of God's authority from God to man to demonstrate not simply what something the church must do, but the individual. Something that governs not the church, but the individual. In Matthew 19, in verse 3, the Pharisee said, It is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. There is nothing in the Scripture that says the church is married physically. He's married to Christ. But nothing that expresses this physical relationship, a church married to another church. I don't even know how that would look. This is an individual thing. Individuals marry other individuals. One person marries another person. That's the Pharisee's question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Now I want us to notice how Jesus demonstrates that that is not lawful. He uses these three components of communication of authority. First, he appeals to an example. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? The example is when they were created, they were separate. There's male and female. They're not together, they're separate. And then he appeals to a direct statement within that example of Genesis chapter 3 as Moses, by inspiration, comments on the particular situation. And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They were separate, but then they're to become one flesh. That's a direct statement. In marriage, they're no longer separate. They're one. They're joined together. God has joined them together. And then he draws a necessary conclusion in verse 6 from that. So then, they are no longer two. They were before, but now they are one flesh. Who joined them together? God. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That has nothing to do with the church collectively. The church must teach this, but the church can't practice this. That's an individual thing. You see that? He used example, direct statement, and necessary implication. Consider how he appealed to example in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 7 when he said, You yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we anyone eat 
uh, anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, notice, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And he is actually practicing and demanding church discipline take place based on that approved example. There were disorderly brethren. He said, withdraw from them who are acting disorderly in this fashion and are not penitent. That had nothing to do with the church collectively. It had to do with a a sinful action on the part of one person. And it was sinful in part based on the transgression according to this example to work. We need to realize that. Moral authority then must be submitted to and it must be enforced. I want to tell you that the call to obedience extends beyond the collective matters of the church. I think we all know this, but do we practice it? Do we exhibit it? Everything you do when you leave this place, everything I do and my family does when we leave this place, we must have an answer from Scripture for why we do it and that we have authority for it. There are far too many Christians who are content with being a part of a church they know adheres to the pattern revealed in the New Testament, and that's enough. They don't have to live lives that are strict, that are to God's will, because they're a part of the right church that's practicing things in the right way. It's important to be a part of the Lord's church. And we can see what the Lord's church is by how the New Testament church acted and what they practiced. That's the pattern of sound words. We've got to hold fast to that. But I want to tell you, it makes no difference that you're a part of the right church if you're not acting properly outside of the collectivity of that assembly. You've got to submit to God's commands in every way. And the Bible is very clear about that. It's not just talking about how we act as a church, but how you act at work, at school, in your own life. In James 2, he mentions that they were to love their neighbor, but they were showing partiality. They transgressed the law. Were they acting as a collective in doing that? Not necessarily. He's speaking about individuals showing partiality. And the example he uses to demonstrate faith without works is dead. He speaks about a brother or sister that is naked and destitute of daily food. And and you don't do what is necessary for them. You don't give them what is necessary. You sin in doing so. That's faith devoid of works. He's speaking about an individual. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, he's not addressing church action when he talks about we should not anymore walk around in drunkenness, revelries, and drinking parties. And he mentions three stages of consuming alcohol. You're dead drunk, you are buzzed, so you do things you normally wouldn't do, or you just had a drink. You're, you're just drinking, it's very social, it's very very relaxed, and you just took one drink of alcohol. He condemned all three. It's not something he's talking about with the church. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're not submitting to the authority of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he mentions that we should be dressing modestly. And in that, it's obviously not something he's enforcing as a church. How could a church collectively dress modestly? It's a collective institution, a divine institution, but individuals are those who put their clothes on. But I want to tell you there's more than that in that regard. It would require us defining what is modest apparel. How can we... Uh, adhere to and submit to the command to dress modestly if we can't identify what that is. And that's that's one of the examples I mentioned. Someone said, you know, you don't have to have a command, uh, a direct statement, uh, an approved example or necessary implication for all that you do as an individual. For example, modesty. You don't find that with modesty. I disagree. He speaks about dressing with shamefastness or propriety. And it has to do with the shame that comes with nakedness. And the Bible is very clear 
through examples, through statements, through necessary implications, what nakedness is. You define nakedness, you define what needs to be covered to constitute modesty. We've got to submit to it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he mentions how we should possess our bodies in sanctification and honor, non-passion of lust like the Gentiles. And so it matters how you act in relationships outside of this place. Someone says, you have no right to judge me and my marriage because this has nothing to do with the church, has nothing to do with you. But in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, he says, the marriage bed's undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It does matter. And it is our business because we're brethren and we're to hold each other accountable. You know, someone says, you know, yeah, I wasn't there at church on Sunday or on Wednesday, but you can't judge me on that. It has nothing to do with you. I, I have my own business. You need to get out of my business. It has everything to do with us. It may have been an individual sin, but it is our business and it is God's business what you're doing on the Lord's day. Someone says, it's, it's a job that I need and, and that, that nullifies this sin of forsaking the assembly. It justifies my actions. No, it doesn't. If a job keeps you from faithfully assembling with the Lord's people, then that job is immoral according to the Scriptures. You're breaking command. And the list goes on. And we need to hold each other accountable in this regard very quickly. Think about the accountability the church at Corinth was neglecting in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. It wasn't a church sin that was involved there. They were involved in a collective sin in neglecting discipline. But he speaks about a man involved in sexual immorality. It was that man's sin. But it should have been enforced. It should have been disciplined by the church. There is accountability. Your business is not simply your business. It's the Lord's business. And if it's the Lord's business, then we have a, a, a call to hold each other accountable in that regard. In Galatians 6, when he says, this brother who is overtaken in a trespass, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, he's not talking about a collective sin of the church. He's talking about an individual sinning. And another man who's faithful sees that individual sinning and he goes to that individual to correct him. It matters what we do as individuals. And we have no right to say it's none of your business because it is. It's the Lord's business. And what's been made public is the business of the brethren. Because in James 5 and verse 19 and 20, he says, if you see one who's overtaken in a trespass, you've got to restore him in so many words. If anyone munders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know who... Hint that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I know a lot of these things we talked about were quick, no doubt, but they, they almost go without saying, but they need to be said. I want to tell you there are brethren who disbelieve these thoughts practically. They would agree with them intellectually, but if you came across them outside the assembly, they are not living the life of a Christian because they don't truly respect the authority of Christ. We need to make sure we do. He dictates everything we do as a church. He dictates everything we do as an individual. That's what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter uh, 2 and verse 20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I live by faith now. That's according to God's word. Thank you for your kind attention. And we'll be dismissed to our classes with a prayer, if you would bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day, this day that belongs to you, a day of worship and study, and we ask that you would be with us throughout the rest of the worship that we'll be engaged in later throughout our Bible classes at this time, that we'd focus our attention on your will, understanding what you have commanded us to do and to refrain from. Help us to learn your will and, and live more like your son each day. We thank you so much for the forgiveness of sins we have because of your son's death on the cross and the hope of heaven that is sustained in him as we're faithful. And it's in his name we pray.